Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode 10. Sorry, I'm a little I'm a little shaky this week. I just got off a plane. I've been traveling all week. Uh, it's nighttime. Mike and I are recording. We don't have Zach with us today. Uh, he was having computer difficulties. We're recording this via Zoom, but uh, we're going to try to do our best. I am joined by Mike. Mike via Zoom. Say hi, Mike. Hey, everybody. Um, so we're going to try to keep this short and sweet, um, selfishly because I am exhausted, did not sleep well on my trip and have been traveling for three days straight. So, uh, this week we heard from Dr. Maria, AKA Margarita Abalos, and we, we got a little bit more information about Emilio Villagomez Gutierrez. So you guys have a lot of questions. We're going to get right into them and try to get right through this. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Okay, Bob, we got a lot of questions gathered from social media this week. Our first question comes from listener Sarah. Sarah writes, Much has been made about Dr. Abelos's comment that when she saw the police in her neighborhood, she blurted out, quote, You're here about my dead neighbors. What do you make of this? I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, Mike edited the interview too, and so here some you didn't hear everything because I had some conversations with her off the air too, but it was interesting. She you know, a couple people on the fan page asked, you know, why didn't you ask the follow-up question? You're like, how did you know? I thought I did on the interview, but maybe I didn't, maybe that was off the air. But the answer was she didn't know. She doesn't know how how she knew, and she's you know, she said, you know, she just woke up, she was she was tired, she was confused. You know, she said she thought, you know, she thought it was, she saw the lights, um the flashlights outside and so she was thinking it was Halloween, which was 2 days before, she thought it was the day before or whatever. So she really doesn't have have an answer other than she, you know, and then in our in our other conversation, she was even like I felt like I knew like what happened to him, like they had been beaten and stuff, but then also that she's like but she doesn't know now 
over all these years and being at the trial and seeing all the news media and everything on it, how much of that information was shaped just from, you know, things just coming into her brain since the t- since that time, you know, new memories being created by new information and having a difficult time distinguishing between what she knew that day and and what she knows now. Um even so with the trial, you know, when she said when she went to the trial, she you know, she kept telling them and I've posted the trial transcripts so you can look at them, but you know, and a few people made made something out of the fact that, you know, she conceded that it could have been a woman in the backyard. But, you know, if you read the transcripts, what she's, you know, the, the, the state is trying to, obviously, it's their job, they're trying to convict a woman, and they have this eyewitness the defense puts on that sees a man in the backyard, so they're trying to make it seem as though she's unsure. And I, to me, when I read uh, the doctor's testimony, she was being very honest, you know, when she, she just kept saying, I don't, it's been a year. I like what I said then was accurate. I, I know it was fresh in my mind. It was hours old. That's but now I don't know. And then, you know, they said, well, don't you think it, it could have been a woman? Maybe it could have been a woman. She can see it. I don't know. Maybe it could have been a woman. But then again, refers back to what I said back then, which I imagine was a difficult position for her because, you know, she gave them her her description doesn't hear from the police for five months. They come back and they show her pictures of women. And you heard her on our interview explain that the the officers were was as she said I think she used she said she didn't want to use the word coaching or whatever but basically they kept pushing her showing her photos of women saying aren't you sure it could have been a woman it could have been a woman are you sure it wasn't a woman and then she goes to trial and finds out the person they arrested and con- and they're trying to convict is a woman uh, that's that's got to be a difficult position to be in so I th- I think she was being honest when she said you know a year later. Okay, now maybe my memory's not as sharp. Maybe I guess maybe it was a woman, but you should be you should really refer back to what I said that day. I know what I said that day was accurate. All right, this one's from Christy. You've talked about in the past how you talk to people regarding their innocence. If you're guilty, you don't want me taking your case. Have you had this conversation with Deborah, or do you plan to have a version of it now that you're writing to her? Well, I mean it would be kind of late for that now for me to, you know, to, to say that to her now, but no, I didn't have that with with Deb, um, but the reason for that is the case was brought to me by Allison, the attorney that's working on our case, and so Al and, and because of the 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 media and interview issues in that medical unit she's in, just like Sandy Melgar, it's not real convenient for me to talk to her. It, it gets really a, a tough line between oh, we're just friends having a conversation, but I'm also reporting on the case. Could be construed as an interview. So, you know, in this case, Allison went to her before we took the case, after they asked for our help on it, Allison went down there and and sat with her and told her, you know, this is the idea she has. She wants me to do it and to get her blessing. And Allison explained all of that stuff to her that, you know, this guy's not coming in as your advocate. He's coming in as an advocate for the truth. He's going to dig to the bottom of it and, and find the truth, hopefully, and and let her know that, you know, explain to her that my job is to find the truth, to figure out if she is innocent or guilty. So Allison had that conversation with her. I have not. Andrew says, in one of Dr. Abelos's statements, she mentioned that she thought the man might have had something to do with the renovations the Courtney's were having done. She didn't mention this at all when she spoke to you. I think this could be significant because this would then be a potential reason why someone would have access to the property. Is this something you could follow up on with her what renovations she was talking about, and what they had taking place. Yeah, I mean, I have her number. I can text her and ask her some follow-up questions. Um, that one, my opinion on it was, 
she got that information for some, from somewhere, right? Probably. She, and she said she was watching the news all the time. If you go back to the beginning of the interview, she had never met the Courtney's. She didn't even know their names. She just knew they were in the backyard. So my thoughts on it at the time were, there's no way she could know, unless she just saw workers in the backyard at some point, because I think they had a bathroom remodeled. But, you know, she wouldn't have had a conversation with the Courtney's to know that, you know, they had some, you know, some contractor working. What we do know is that they did have that Terry Hall was his name, a contractor come to give him a quote, but he had never given them a quote. And there was no other evidence that there was anybody else supposed to be working on the house. So either I think she had just seen when they were having uh, renovations done at some point, you know, previous, had seen somebody doing work in the backyard, although I don't think they did any work in the backyard, unless they had tools or something back there. Or she just kind of picked up on that, just like I was talking about with the previous question. She had picked up on that over time from watching the media around the case. Chris says, in the detective notes, when Maria was being shown the photo spread, a note off to the side makes it sound like the police asked her if she had ever lied to the police and whether she was being treated for an illness. Are those standard questions in these circumstances? No, I I wouldn't think so. I think... um, there's that, and there's another um, thing, another listener, uh, Jenny Decker, I think, had brought up on the fan page that I want to follow up with Maria. Um, one was that, that you know they, were, they asked her about an illness, and I hadn't caught that. And also, I should point out, speaking of me being kind of tired right now, as far as my interview skills, that interview, I don't think I said this on the podcast, but I recorded that at 12.30 a.m. I was actually, I had actually been in bed, I was, I was trying to set up. I had spoke with her early in the day. She was supposed to get a hold of me later that, later that evening. She lives in California. It's a three-hour time difference. I went to bed at 11, and at 12.30, she called me and is like, I can do the interview now. So it was literally like, wake up, wipe the sleep out of my eyes, and run out and do it. But so anyway, there was that would be worth following up on. I mean, I got the impression from her and just from reading the report that Hardy was maybe a little frustrated based on the fact that, A, he showed her pictures of women when she described a man. And then as she said that he was, you know, he kept kind of, trying to coax her or ask her that, you know, could it have been a woman that he was really trying to get her seemed like to pick a woman out of that lineup. But as far as the illness, I don't know. And then there's another thing that uh, Jenny had noted that was uh, in one of the statements or the notes, I think Dr. Abelos had said something about that. She has experience being a uh, working, you know, experience with the police, both as a victim and as a witness when she lived in Arizona. So I do want to follow up on that too. You know, I don't know what I assume that she was either a victim or a witness to a crime and had interactions with the, with the police, and she was just explaining to him. So you know, I kind of like I know how this goes, but uh, that's something I want to follow up on with her too. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Liz says, I miss what made the police think that Dr. Abelos and her boyfriend were suspicious enough to handcuff. Yeah, from what from what she said, and then reading the reports, I, I think it was a combination of the fact that when she saw the police coming, she was getting in her car to drive away, which I think they perceived as like she was fleeing, and then also the fact that that she said, you know, you're here about my dead neighbor is that you, the way she described it. The reason they like put him in handcuffs was because they hadn't told anybody that there had been a murder. And the first thing she says to him is, you're here about my dead neighbor. So it was like, why do you know that they're dead? And the fact that you're getting in your car when we're coming up. So I think they look suspicious. And that's why they put him in handcuffs. Ashley says, the drapes are all closed in the crime scene photos. Were these closed when the officers arrived for the welfare check? Or did the officers close them? Also, did the Courtney's usually have them open during the day? I don't know about them having them open during the day. Um, that was when we first started uh, with this case. One of the first things I want to do is try to get a hold of Mabel and Joe Zabo uh, across the street and ask them that question. But then they've passed on, so uh, that's that's not an not an option for us anymore. But yes, they were they were closed when the officers got there. It was noted in either Galusha or Gonzalez or both of their reports that when they got on the scene and walked around the house, all of the the, the drapes or blinds or curtains were closed. Isabel says, you mentioned in a previous follow-up episode that there may be some evidence of prior threats made against Lloyd. Is there any more information about these threats that we might be getting into? Yeah, there is. As a matter of fact, that's uh, something that we're going to be covering. Um, it's going to be kind of a hodgepodge. We have a special guest this Sunday, and then I've got some other things that I want to cover. Uh, and that's one of them I, I, I was able to find in the files. If anybody knows, when you look at the detective's notes, Hardy's notes begin on like the 7th of November. Uh, and then, but I found in another file more notes that went from like the day of the murder up to that point. Uh, and then I've been still steadily reviewing more and more and more of the documents that we have and did come across some of the information about the threats made to Lloyd. Uh, so we'll be discussing some of that on Sunday, I think. Alexis says, I believe the thermostat in the Courtney's house was set to 55 degrees. Do we know if the house was actually this cold? If so, would it affect the lividity timeline that you've previously presented? As far as the lividity timeline, we're going to get more information on that Sunday. That's our special guest. We have an expert ME that's come in to talk about lividity. Um, but as far as the cold temperature affecting lividity, I, my opinion is no. Because so when we say there's a range, the range is from, say, four to 10 hours up to maybe six to 12 hours as far as how long it takes for lividity to fix. In that range, the reason there's such a wide range are because of variables like temperature. So say if it's hotter, the lividity fixes faster. Then, you, then you know, lividity would probably fix around six hours. And if it's colder, it's slower. And that might take 12 hours. But that's why that range is there. Uh, as far as what the temperature actually was, that, that's a puzzling one. Some, somebody noticed, one of the listeners on the page, I don't remember uh, the name of the person that found it, but it was in one of the notes that we posted, somebody wrote the thermostat was in the hallway was set to 55 degrees, which is like, all the way off or all the way down, depending on the thermostat. Uh, listener Don McElhaney 
looked at the pictures from the crime scene and seems to have narrowed down the model of Honeywell thermostat. And it looks like it's a type that has like the slider bar on the bottom. And then one side will have like mode and fan. And then there's an off switch on the side. But th- that's, again, there's kind of a, a frustrating part of some lack of documentation or photographs. It because just because the slider was on 55 doesn't mean the air conditioner was even on, you know, you and I thought about it. Um, my wife and I went out to dinner. What day was it? Saturday before we both left for our for our trips. And uh, I was was having dinner and I went back to use the restroom. And the funny thing is, I walked out and there's the exact same thermostat or very similar thermostat at the restaurant we're at. And I looked at it and the thermostat was set all the way to 55, all the way to the left. But then. It, it clearly was not 55 degrees anywhere near that room. And so it, got, it kind of got me thinking about it. So I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things. I doubt they had it set on 55 in a situation where the air was working properly and would get the house to 55. You know, that's freezing cold. That's really cold to be inside your house. So I think some possibilities are that the air conditioner wasn't on. Maybe that's why the drapes were pulled. You know, if you got a, a brick house, if you keep them... Mike, you remember the the Papalardo house, my, the, the the one of my houses you lived in, the, the rental? How could I forget, man? Right. <laughs> so in that house, it didn't have air conditioning. But do you remember in the summer, like if you kept the blinds pulled in that house, was it ever really hot or bad in there? Right. Yeah. As long as they were shut, it didn't get too hot. Yeah. It seemed like it was, you know, I remember when we were working on it, you know, get to renovate, doing the renovations. You know, if it was a hundred degrees outside, it would be hot in there, but. You know, on an 85 degree day, it just it it stayed pretty cool, and 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 that was not a brick house. Brick houses tend to be a little more in, to have a little more insulation to them. So I I don't think it's out of the question on an 87 degree day to have the blinds the blinds closed to keep the sun out and the air conditioner off, and that it would stay comfortable in there. That's possible, or it could have been on and it was really that cold, or it could have been you know in a struggle down the hallway, or somebody rushing down the hallway could have bumped it, or an officer could have bumped it. You know, through that process, there's a lot of variables. Again, another one of those things that if they just taken some pictures of it and properly documented. But you know, I I feel like if if the detectives, if 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 Officer Galusha opened the door, walked into the crime scene, and it was 55 degrees inside the house, a 30 degree variance from what it is outside, that I think that I feel like, and it's just a, it's anecdotal, whatever. You know, it's just a guess. But to me, I feel like you would have noted it was very cold in the house. You know, where, where nobody said anything like that. So, uh, long, long, long answer, and not a very good one. But I would say, I, I doubt that it was actually that cold in there. Kimberly says, "Has anyone interviewed the next door neighbor who was hanging the laundry when Doctor Abelos' dogs were barking?" In the neighborhood canvas notes, it says no one was home. No, but I, that's a that's a good idea. That's someone I hadn't thought of. I, I know that I was just there. I was just literally on my trip, standing in that neighborhood. And so I know that house. I'm sure, obviously, not the same person living in, in there now. But you know, I thought you know there was the the police talked to one of the Courtney's neighbors at some point. Who remember they said that the daughter had come by, and they have like a housekeeper that comes by, and they talk to her and talk to. Well, they only have obviously two neighbors. One of them is the one right next to Doctor Abelos's house because it's kind of the corner house. The street isn't. They're, they're not like a perpendicular street. They kind of make like a pie shape. And so it goes Courtney's house and then another house and then Abelos's house is down the next street right behind them. So I always assumed that the neighbor whose daughter was there and the housekeeper uh, was there. I always thought it was that house. I'll have to go back and verify the addresses. And if not, as somebody, we should definitely look up. Julie says, is it possible to get a copy of the photo lineup that was shown to Dr. Abelos? Is that something you can usually access with a FOIA request? 
Uh, I would love to. We have so in the files, and I'll get a, I'll get it posted. There, there's a photo lineup that contains Deb in it, and it's got initials on it. But when I looked at it, it's not. I, it's not the. I don't think it's the photo lineup that was shown to Abelos. They may have shown her the same one, but in this one, remember back in an earlier episode that there were there were a couple officers that were at the funeral. And said that, you know, they heard Deb, like, say, I'm sorry, daddy, or I'm sorry to her dad, and then talk to her mom's casket. And then they they showed those officers a photo lineup so they could identify who it was that they saw. And they identified, yes, it was Deborah Perringer that they saw at the casket. And that, that I, the name's escaping me right now, but th- that officer's, I think Mike Brown is sticking in my head. But anyway, that officer's initials are on that photo card. But now I think that it's, it would seem likely that there that that would be the same photo card that they would have shown Dr. Avalos, but I can't say for sure that that's what happened. Joe says, the cut caller ID box keeps hanging me up. If Lloyd was killed first, why cut the cable in the bedroom? If the killer comes up upon Agnes and kills her, it would have to be cut after both murders. I don't get it. I don't either. That's a, that's a really good observation, actually. Speaking of which, don't let me forget, Mike, when I'm done with this, there's another observation from a listener I want to talk about. Yeah, because you so said the caller ID box, and I got a good look at, uh, at a photo of it at the district clerk's office this week. We'll be discussing probably Sunday. Um, but it was like, it was, it was on the desk, which would be past Agnes. So, so which, as this listener says, the, the killer would have had to walk past Agnes to the desk to cut the box. Or, which seems very unlikely, or after the killings cut it, or before the killings cut it, you know, and, and there's reasons for both. And that's a, I would say that's another, uh, that's another element that goes really against Deb, I think, that the, the caller ID box, because of the fact that it seems that the thing that would make the most sense is that it was cut before the murders occurred. But then you got the one in the living room that's, that's right there out where you know, Lloyd was, you know, that she would cut it, you know, cut it right before he was there. I don't know. But but definitely it's possible that the phone cords were cut prior to the murders. If that's the case, then I think that definitely points us towards death because she was in the house. Or there's a possibility they were cut after the murders, I guess, so that no calls come in. I, I don't I don't know what the purpose of that would be, cutting them after the murders or during. I, I don't know. The more I think about it, it, it definitely seems you know, more likely that they were cut before. And if they were, then I think that's that's definitely a strike against Deb. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, sorry. You had another observation from a listener that you wanted me to mention. Oh, right. Uh, it was discussed on the fan page. I should have wrote down the name. But somebody just made a very simplistic post, a very simple post, I should say, that made a lot of sense. And it was simply the fact, and it was simply the fact that whether the note was printed, we're, we're talking about the printer note from two episodes ago, but whether the note was printed on the Courtney's computer or it was printed on another computer, in either case, it was printed 
before the murders, which again, seems simple, but it's almost kind of like a light bulb moment, right? So we didn't know until we saw the computer forensics that the only thing printed at the Courtney's house was at 10 in the morning before the murders. So now we know that. And if it wasn't printed there, it had to be printed somewhere else prior to. So just as, as we're working towards kind of a behavioral analysis and a profile of the scene, so now we know that, that it was premeditated, right? They, somebody, somebody printed out that note, wrote that note out, printed it either and did that and then brought it with them or did it there in the house and then held onto it for an hour or two before the murders happened. So anyway, it was just, there's nothing real, you know, something probably a lot of you already thought of, but it was just something that, that occurred to me that I thought, wow, that is a really, really good and simple observation. Okay, now we can go back to that other question. Okay. Lauren says, so if we're looking further into Emilio, I'm wondering if there's a potential family connection to the Courtney's. Not, not that I see. For me, I'm, I'm not going to keep harping on Emilio on the podcast. You know, what we, we had to do is everything we do with everything else, right? We have questions and we seek out answers and we try to fill in as much gaps as we can. And Emilio was a big question, you know, and we, and we still have questions about him, but We've gotten as far, you know, we, we got the bill of sale. We found out, you know, where he lived. We found out about the other robbery, got a little bit of insight into how it took, you know, the, the difficulty in tracking him down. Now, at this point, I'm going to continue looking to see if there's any kind of connection there. But, you know, it's like we, I think we know enough about him to know that if he was just a random stranger to the Courtney's because of the note that it, it couldn't have been him. So. You know, and I don't want to be in a situation where it's like, well, he's, you know, it's probably him unless he can prove he's not connected. It's the other way around. Like, as all we know is this dude was pulled over in the neighborhood and that's all we know about him. And it's all we really need to know about him unless we find there is some sort of family connection, which, again, you know, that'll that'll be work that's being done behind the scenes. But I'm not going to be going on and on about that process unless I find something that is of interest. Amy says, there was a lot of talk in the episode about the document that was typed and printed at 10 a.m. As in, where was that document? It was typed and printed. Shouldn't it be in the house somewhere? But isn't it possible that it was mailed, which accounts for its absence? That's all I could think about while listening to this episode. Uh, that is possible. Uh, it's definitely possible that it was, if Lloyd typed something up, that he might have typed it and then you know stuck it in the mailbox and that it wouldn't be in the house. It's also possible, as we said last week, that it's in the house. Because, again, we don't have a thorough documentation. We don't have any pictures. We don't have an inventory of the pieces of paper that are at the Courtney's house. Or it could have been some of those printed out and then thrown away. You know, who knows? I actually have a theory about it, and I, and I want to I'm, I'm gonna bring it up on Sunday. But for those of you that don't know, I found more, more pages of the computer forensics. So we had like the computer forensics report final summary. I found a lot of the data pages, but just like everything else, we have pages one, I think one through six, and then page nine, pages seven and eight are missing from that for some reason. But within that, I posted those on the website. If you want to review them, I, they, they're Greek to me for the most part. So I put them up for anybody that really knows computers to look at. And a lot of listeners have, but within there, I think it was in, within there or another document that I found. I have a clue about what might've been printed. But before I, I, I let it out now, I want to I want to fact check myself, especially right now. this late at night and my brain's not working quite right. But I will Sunday give you my theory about what I think may have been printed on that on the computer. All right. And our last question comes from Brooke. Isn't it possible that this was a paid hit 
And if so, wouldn't it be difficult to find the connection between Emilio, if he did, of course, do this, and the Courtney's? I mean, in much the same way that Maria kind of had to concede at trial to say that, I guess it could have been a woman, I, I would say that it could have been a hit. And what I mean by that is, I, I, I guess you can't say it's impossible, but in my opinion, it is extremely, highly improbable. Almost completely improbable, in my opinion. Other than ingress and egress going undetected, even and that's that's the case. By the way, even if it's de- not so much ingress, but even if it's dead, the egress, you know, getting out of there in the middle of that neighborhood without anybody knowing you just you just committed a brutal, bloody double homicide takes some skill. You know, cleaning up the blood and walking out, not looking nervous, not being seen by anybody when you're leaving because it. it I'll say this, it seems like from the timeline uh, that if Deb did it, she would have had to have left and came back later. Because I, I just don't think if she's gone by noon, the, you know, that, that timeline issue is a big hanger. This whole, I'm, I'm rambling right now, but as I'm just kind of thinking out loud and processing a lot of what I've seen in the last few days, it's just, this, table, this, this case is just very, very, I, I keep saying it's so complex, but it's, it's complex and it's, just, it's, it's fascinating and I want to get to the bottom of it. Because things will come up like we just discussed today. A few minutes ago, the caller ID box. It's like, hmm, when you think about that, because of its location, almost seems like it makes more sense that it was cut before the murders. If it was cut before the murders, then that points to, towards Deb. But then you look at the, the timeline, just the stuff we know, just the stuff the state concedes. One of the things I'm hoping to get from the district clerk's office, I'm waiting for Allison to get back with me with copies of what we saw, uh, is there, they had a big board up with a timeline. And they show, you know, that... 11:19 Agnes is to shutting the computer off and it or the, the computer's being shut off with a soft shutdown and at noon it, they write on their timeline Deb's gone by noon you know so they and then that's beyond all the other timing issues we have that we're dealing with with alibi and things but so I look at that and it's like man there's just she couldn't have been there but then it's like but it kind of looks like she was there anyway back to the question as I, as I'm rambling on as we close this episode out and I'm ready for Betty bye Th- there's no markers other than the ingress and egress of this being a professional hit. I mean, people keep saying they didn't bring a weapon with them. I disagree. I think they brought a knife. I think whoever killed him brought a knife. Uh, that, that we, I, I'm certain. I've seen the knife now with my own eyes, inches from my face. That's not the knife that killed them. I'm certain of that. The one that was stuck in Lloyd's leg. But other than that, you know, the, the frying pans and, and so being so ineffective with the attacks and with the stabbings and the cuttings, it just has nothing about it marks, you know, hitman. But then again, you know, they, just because somebody, I want to apologize for listeners, for all of you guys, by the way, that I'm so scatterbrained right now. I'm just literally exhausted. But having said all that, just because somebody is a hired hit person doesn't mean that they're John Gotti. Doesn't mean that they're competent. Right. I mean, I mean, any of you watch the Tiger King, the guy that uh, Joe Exotic was hiring to kill Carol Baskin, you know, that would technically be a paid hitman. You know, not exactly an assassin. You know, so so if somebody paid someone to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be very skilled in what they're doing. They just have to be the person. As a matter of fact, I would think most people don't know how to get a hold of that guy. You know, if I wanted to have something like that done, I wouldn't know how to get a hold of a professional hitman. You know, I mean, I know some people that 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 maybe maybe kind of shifty like that might do something like that, Um, but I wouldn't know how to get a hold of a professional hitman. So that's just an idea that. You know, I, I think that we need to keep in mind if we're, when we're thinking along those lines. But again, I, I come back to the note. The note to me 
almost says that this was a premeditated assault and not a murder. Not a premeditated murder is what I mean. And the reason for that is because the note is written to Lloyd. You know, who writes a note to a dead man if you knew they were going to be dead? You know, there's a couple things, and I, I, we've talked about this before with the note. Either the note is just 100% a forensic countermeasure intended to point the police in a different direction. Because again, you don't write the note to a dead person. So the, and the purpose of displaying the note is not for the person who you just killed. The purpose of displaying it is for when the police find it so they see it and read it. So that, that all the way, that's forensic countermeasure. The only way that I would say it's not 100% a forensic countermeasure is if it was something along the lines of somebody coming in for revenge. We talked about this before, like maybe they were going to come in and attack Lloyd's wife. You know, maybe they thought, you know, they thought he wasn't home and they were going to attack her or they were going to beat him up and rough him up a little bit. And it was premeditated. They wrote the note as a big F you when the when the assault was over, but they weren't planning on killing them because, again, the notes written to Lloyd. But but even with that, then displaying it on him later. I mean, who knows what somebody said? These are things people have mentioned Jim Clemente. I want to try to get Jim in on this, but I know Jim well enough to know that it's too early for him to come in and do a, 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 a profile on this yet because we have too many unanswered questions. He's going to ask me questions in order for him to do the profile that I don't have the answers to yet. So we're going to get to all of that. And with that, Mike, you said that was the last question? That's it, Bob. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to call it a night. We're going to call it an episode. Thank you, guys. Mike, I'm sure we'll make this sound smoother than it was. And uh, we'll talk to you guys on Sunday. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. 
If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Thank you.